What's up, you guys? <laughs> um, this spooky week, we took your guys's. Uh, we asked you on Instagram if you wanted to hear "Let's Not Meet Stories," and with an overwhelming amount of votes, it was it. one hundred percent a yes. So we are going to <laughs> uh, give you a campfire stories esque. Uh, let's not meet stories so enjoy some music and some campfire sounds and some spooky stories spooky. now imagine sound. crackling fire all right ready to get spooky yes when i was in high school i was like 16 i had a friend lisa and a second friend zoe Lisa had like a lot of money and her huge house was located right next to our high school. So every time we had a break or anything, the three of us would go there. And we also would have a lot of sleepovers at our house. It was this huge rich people house, so it was awesome to stay there. So one day we decided to stay the night there. The three of us, plus Lisa's little sister, Anna, their mother was gone for the night. We decided to put on some PJs and watch scary movies for hours. Anna went to bed before us three, and we just stayed in the living room watching TV. At one point, the alarm goes off. It happens sometimes, so Lisa just went to turn it off, and that was it. But then like 10 minutes later, the alarm goes on again, and it scared us because it's not supposed to. Technically, the alarm was made to ring only when humans come by, because the house was located in the middle of the forest. So we all knew that sometimes animals would come by the house, happened before. So when the alarm was installed, it was calibrated for humans only, and it was the second time it rang. We started to get a little bit scared, so we went upstairs, opened the windows to look at the garden all around the house, and nothing. We even went on the balcony in the middle of the night, nothing. I was alone on the balcony at some point, and the alarm went on again, and the automatic lights around the pool turned on. That meant something was around the pool, and I was just above it. I got so scared, I got on my knees and stayed there until my friend deactivated the alarm and the lights, and I ran inside the house. At this point, we were really, really scared and started thinking about what it could be. We turned all the lights off, and all four of us went hiding downstairs in the kitchen without our phones. I don't even know why not even one of us thought about taking at least one phone. So we were there, lights off, scared in a huge house with windows everywhere we could look. The alarm went berserk again. Anna screamed. Lisa took her with her, reassuring her while walking to shut the alarm off. So I was in the kitchen with Zoe only, and we were just looking all around us. The alarm was upstairs, so the two girls were far from us. At some point, we heard footsteps right beside us, like right on the other side of the wall in the garden. It was fast, not scared, just fast, like that person knew where they were going. So we just freezed, waiting in the dark and jumping when something... Well, someone walked by the door window right in front of us. He, we think it was a he, had a light, but it was another light that allowed us to see his silhouette. So there were at least two running around the house for about at least 20-30 minutes. We were still not moving and the girls upstairs were so scared that they stayed there. At least it's what they told us. Suddenly, one voice, then a second one. I was unable to understand anything, but I heard it and Zoe and I were blinded by a sudden light right at our faces. We were literally not able to move, scream, talk, not anything we could have done was possible. We were just frozen in fear. The light stayed there. Someone was seeing us through the blinds. Someone was watching us, being scared, and was just staying there. Suddenly, we heard a hard sound on the front door, which was closed. 
Zoe didn't move at all, but I don't know what took me. It just woke me up and I crawled to the door in front of me, closed the blinds and just held the door in place in case the guy on the other side tried to force it. Honestly, I'm small and thin. My little body was useless there, but I did it anyway. The one at the front door was still trying to enter. Zoe still not moving. The two girls upstairs doing I don't know what. And the one just a glass window away from me started hitting it, trying to force it. It was closed, but I just grabbed the handle and hanged in there for a while. He was just hitting and trying to open the door. All this lasted for hours in my head, but I believe it was only a few seconds. At one point, the hits at the front door stopped. A few seconds later, the other one in front of me stopped as well. Then the lights just moved fast everywhere. The alarm did nothing, so it was disabled as wanted, and there was nothing. Zoe and I just slept in the kitchen and the two sisters upstairs. Nothing happened at all. It was over. The next day, Lisa and Anna's mom came back home. We told her everything, got a bit yelled at because we didn't call the cops. I took it wrong at that time, but I understand now why she got upset. She called the cops, who went to see the house and just discovered footsteps all around the house. Some muddy footprint mark on the front door. They said they must have kicked the door, and that was it. They told us it must have been some guys who were just doing some recognition. You know, when they just walk around the house to see how to rob it. It was common in this area. There was a lot of really big and beautiful houses filled with expensive things. The only thing I will never be able to explain is why they started being so aggressive. Originally, they were just walking around the house. But I think that if they were trying to see something or just look things up, they would have left when they realized we were inside. Or at least left when that guy saw us in the kitchen. Well, they didn't. The moment they saw us in the kitchen, they start being aggressive and trying to force the doors to enter the house where we were. I don't know if they really wanted to rob the house. I will never, and honestly, I don't want to know. I didn't spend any more nights at that house. I got so scared. They would come back again. I couldn't sleep there. Lisa got a bit mad like she didn't understand, but from what she told Zoe and I, she didn't see them. She just stayed upstairs with her sister. I understand it, but I wasn't able to stand the fact that she couldn't understand how scared I was as well. I was watching my daughter's kids while she and her husband go out of town. They have a teenage daughter. Let's say her name is Alyssa. At like 3 a.m., I'm woken up by a weird rustling sound and look out the window and see movement. I saw a boy emerge from the bushes on the side of the house. I saw a bike tossed on the lawn that definitely wasn't ours. The first thought was it was a burglar casing the house, but since he looked young, he came through on a bike, I figured scaring him straight would be enough for him to decide to head home. Didn't want to ruin a teenager's life by calling the cops straight away. So I went onto the porch, flipped the lights on, and said, can I help you in my classroom voice? The guy looked surprised, but not nervous. He was wearing a Letterman-style jacket, but once I got a clear view of him in the streetlights, he seemed much older than my granddaughter. Gruff, and more wiry than athletic. He walked up closer to the house and said, Yeah, I'm looking for Alyssa. I gave him a disapproving glare, hoping that he realized he came looking for a girl late at night with a grumpy old person who answered the door. I'm thinking what must have happened is Alyssa knew her parents were going out of town and maybe before she knew I'd be staying over, told her older boyfriend to come over. It was late and I was alone with several kids so I didn't want him to come any closer to the house. I also thought it was weird he came so late and wanted to be sure Alyssa actually wanted to talk to him. So I said, I'm sorry, who? And he said, Alyssa, you know, Alyssa last name. This is her house. I thought he knew her full name, they must be friends. I said, you wait here. He started to walk up and I felt a sick burning in my gut. 
instinct kicked in. I yelled, no, stop, freeze. Then readjusted and said, you stay right here. This is private property. Don't take a step closer. Wait there. I go in and Alyssa is asleep, just one room over from where the rustling first occurred. And I wake her up and say something to the effect, I don't know what the big idea was having friends over at this time of night, but you tell him to go home. She has no clue what I'm talking about. I say, there's a guy outside asking for you. Confused, she gets up and goes to the window. She sees him and goes white as a sheet. He asked for me? Yeah. By name? Yes. Call the police. I've never seen him in my life. I immediately called 911, but as I was on the phone with them, Alyssa started tugging at my arm. He's coming up. I had younger kids in the house to think about, so I kept the door latched and pulled it open just enough for the latch and yelled, my husband and none of us know any Alyssa last name. Please leave my property or I'm calling 911. He got angry and started yelling for her to come out. Thankfully, the police came pretty quickly and when he heard the sirens, he grabbed his bike and ran off. I watched where he was running and he jumped into the passenger side of a car without headlights or front plates and sped off. The police followed in the same direction once I pointed them, but they didn't get him. They advised us to take all her social media details offline if she was sure she didn't know this person and said they had a couple similar reports recently and they were looking into it. I got a heavy duty lock and she slept in my room for the remainder of my visit. I'm from a rural town in Indiana where my mom worked as a criminal defense paralegal. Since the town was so small and the drug and poverty rates were so high, her boss would frequently be court appointed to really strange and vile cases and she would be forced to defend some real scumbags. She did her best to hide the details from me and my sis, but obviously we picked up on the tension. On two cases, however, we came really close to emergency. One, I was probably 11 to 12 years old and she was working on a court-appointed murder trial. She was defending the accused murderer who had allegedly killed an older woman who was trying to return a faulty car to the used car lot that this man owned with his father. I believe her body was found shoved in a trunk on the car lot. My mother was absolutely certain, however, that this man was innocent and that he was being framed by his father. As the depositions and hearings all progressed, it became very clearly that my mother's boss, the lawyer, was absolutely going to go after the father of the accused. The father showed up outside their office, made vague threats to the lawyer, and then one night our home computer, this was in the very early 2000s, went nuts and crashed. She comes home the next day visibly more stressed and tells us at dinner that her boss's home computer did the same thing last night. She seemed to think we were all hacked, but could be any sort of scam, you know? After dinner, my dad, sister, and I went to the neighbor's house to play The Sims, and dad was drinking with the parents while my mom painted my upstairs bedroom at home. Phone rings. Mom is hysterically screaming at the neighbor to bring my dad and come because he's here. He's trying to get in the sliding glass door. He sees me. Hurry between sobs. They run out the door barefoot in the middle of winter and he's gone. Police come and find snowy shoe prints all around the house, looking in all the windows and stood outside the trees that, that looks directly into my room where she was painting. Cops had to stay out front of our house for days until they could catch him and he absolutely went to jail for that murder and we stayed family friends with his son. But if me and my sister were at home, we absolutely would have opened the door for him. We had no idea what he looked like and we lived in a really friendly neighborhood where popping over unannounced was normal. Story 2. At this point, I'm 15, 16 years old, and this time my mom, dad defended 
a drunk driver who killed a young woman 10 years prior. The man pleaded guilty, felt absolutely horrible, turned his life around, and even went traveling to different high schools speaking about the dangers of drinking, of driving drunk. He wrote books, attended AA meetings in prison, went to union prison, etc. By all accounts, he had paid his debt to society and was to be released in a week or so. The father of the dead girl was understandably upset that the man was being released from jail and had known my mom for most of their lives. This dad was also notoriously unstable and loved himself some meth. So one night, I'm home alone with my mom while my sister and dad are out of town. She had been quiet all night and I was hungry and it was late so I went downstairs to see about the dinner situation and found her sat silently staring at her phone with tears rolling down her eyes. She can be dramatic, so I was initially irritated, thinking it was going to be some stupid drama, so I snarked, What? And she gasped out, He's coming to take you away from me, and collapsed in tears. What? I fly down the rest of the stairs, snatch the phone, and read the message chain. He said that he knew she was alone in the house with her oldest son. He wanted her to know how it felt to lose her oldest child. He sent a picture of a handgun on the center console of his car, and our address typed out below. The messages had been sent over the last 20 minutes, and this realization hit me in the stomach so hard I almost vomited. He was on his way to kill me. How far away could he be? Why is she just fucking sitting here? I was livid with her and started screaming to call the police as I locked the doors. Drew all the curtains on our huge picture windows, and she just continued to sit there frozen, muttering he wanted to kill me. He knows where we are. Like she was totally disassociated in shock, so I dragged her up to my room and we called the police who arrived and posted up at the entrance to our neighborhood. Not five minutes later, this motherfucker turns the corner into our neighborhood and they caught him with a gun. They sent him to some mental facility and a rehab and I never heard anything about him again. I know she was frozen, but if I hadn't come down the stairs at that exact moment, I could have been dead and I have honestly never fully trusted her or anyone to react to a crisis since then. After high school, many years ago, I was in a bad place. My guardian had kicked me out after graduation. She didn't help me find a place to stay, so I lived in my car for a couple months. I met some heavy metal dudes at work one day. I'd seen them around town, and my other friends knew who they were. Everyone loved them. We became friends over a couple of months, and they offered for me to move in with them. I agreed. Looking back now, I wish I had just stayed in my car. My two main roommates were brothers. They were named Andrew and Seth. They were in a band, and they also believed in the occult and anything of that sort. I never really believed in that stuff, but I'm not one to tell someone what they should believe. They had let me live with them rent-free for several months. So who was I to complain? Being the only female in the house of full of young men, I was always looking over my shoulder. You never know who you can trust. Turns out I was right to worry. Over time, their friends started to stay with us for longer periods of time, sometimes weeks. Their friends were another group of brothers that they had gone to school with, and there were five brothers in total, but only two stayed with us consistently. The younger brother, Mark, was very polite. He cleaned up after himself, and he always helped with household chores. The other brother, Adam, had a laundry list of mental problems and he had apparently done some bad drugs back in the day and it had developed into what seemed like a psychosis of the religious sort. He had done time in prison for assaulting women with a Bible. He would often look you dead in the eyes and tell you he could see how you would die. Once he told me that I was possessed by a demon and I needed my soul cleansed. Everyone in the house knew he had these problems, but he was their friend. They helped him through the hard times and gave him a place to stay. 
Otherwise, he'd be on the streets. I was always on guard around him after the things he told me. No one else seemed to be as concerned as I was. They should have been. One day, I was sleeping, and my phone rang. It was my boss. He asked if I could come into a work an hour early. It was only 12 p.m. I was broke, and I had nothing better to do, so I said yes. I got up and be began getting ready to leave. I walked out to into the living room to see Mark and Andrew sitting on the couch, while Adam sat on the floor by the TV. He was watching scripture videos on YouTube. Some real end-of-days shit. That was fairly common, so I went about my business. I said goodbye and left for work. My shift at work was almost complete when the phone rang. My boss answered and handed the phone to me and said, For you. I was just a cashier, so I assumed it was a friend who couldn't reach me on my phone. I answered my phone, and I heard a man's voice that I didn't recognize. Hi, this is Detective Williams. Something happened at your apartment today, and we need you to come to the station to talk about it. I left work immediately. I had assumed that one of the brothers had been arrested for drug dealing or something. I was very wrong. I got to the station, and I was buzzed in. The officer escorted me to a small room, a cold room with a camera, and he gave me a bottle of water and left me by myself for about 30 minutes. My mind was racing about what could have happened. He came back and informed me that Adam had stabbed and killed Andrew at about 1 p.m. I was shocked. I had just left the house an hour before it happened, and everything seemed fine. I asked if there had been a fight. The detective informed me that there hadn't been a fight, but it seemed as if it happened out of nowhere. I gave the police my statement and left with nowhere to go, still in shock and confused out of my mind. Our apartment was a crime scene, so I went to another friend's house to watch the news report, since the police wouldn't give me any information on the case. Over the next couple of days, information began to be released. Adam hadn't just stabbed Andrew once, not twice, but he stabbed him over and over and nearly decapitated him. After the murder, he ran down the road holding the murder weapon. He called 911 and informed them of what he'd done. I watched the news report in horror. We had known he was unstable, but this? He had fully confessed the brutal murder and provided the police with his notebooks. He had apparently been planning to murder all of his brothers, my roommates, and me. He thought that we were possessed by demons, and this was the only way to free us. Luckily, none of the other intended victims were there that day. Mark unfortunately witnessed the murder, but he luckily escaped. If I hadn't gotten that call from my boss, I wouldn't be alive today. So to the man who brutally murdered my friend and wanted to murder me, let's never meet again. This happened in 2004 when I was 11. My mom is a paralegal and at the time worked at a family law firm. Something urgent came up and she had to go get case materials from her job that night. So she took me with her to go grab them. It was around 7pm. I should mention, I guess, that I lived in a fairly affluent, nice neighborhood where it was very safe and nothing bad really happened. My mom and I watch horror movies, so this isn't a forgot to lock the front door story because hell no. I say this to give credit to my mom's insane sense of in insane sense of intuition and likely that likely saved our life that night. We pull into the parking lot and my mom doesn't get out of the car. I'm an only child, so I was reading in the back seat and honestly didn't notice nor care, but eventually I asked her why we weren't getting out of the car. She replied that she was waiting because as we pulled in, someone walked through the parking lot and got into the car right behind us, then proceeded to wait in his car while it was on with the lights pointed at our car. 
It wasn't overly sketchy or creepy as there were several non-ominous explanations, but my mom had a gut feeling and I'm glad she trusted her intuition and proceeded very deliberately and carefully because it quite possibly saved our life. But eventually she turned to me and was like, okay, I have no idea what this guy is doing so let's just go grab this stuff and leave. I didn't know this at the time because I was at this point mildly oblivious, but he got out of his car and followed us. My mom told me to hurry up because it was freezing and we jogged to the door. Her building required a card to buzz you inside, so once we got in, we figured we'd be fine. The parking lot we were in is giant and random people hang out there all the time, including myself frequently as a teenager drinking four locos in the parking lot. Classic. And he came from seemingly nowhere, so the chances of him also having a card to buzz in were not very high. This was also something I wasn't really aware of or paying attention to at the time. But a few moments after we buzzed in, thinking we were in the clear, he came in right behind us. I asked my mom about this. I didn't learn what happened until years later. I can understand why she didn't tell me. And she said a few things ran through her mind. He could have been a total psycho who stole someone's card, which was the least likely as it was just too fucking random. So he was either an employee or a client. They held late night mediation sessions inside the building, so it was typical to give clients a temporary pass for convenience. I'm going to assume this practice changed after this event. My mom, knowing the ID card system, actually wondered if she was overthinking it at that point, but she just had that gut feeling and stuck to it and truly taught me from the get-go to fuck politeness. I hadn't seen him follow us in, and my mom honestly played it so cool that I didn't even put two and two together and just thought it was another random employee. But I remember just having a weird gut feeling that I just couldn't put my finger on and mercifully I just shut up and followed my mom's lead. Before he came in, my mom was frantically pressing the elevator button just in case he somehow got in, but it hadn't come yet. So he came in and waited for the elevator for us. My mom was fake polite and said hi. Then when it came, he got in and held the door open for us waiting. My mom really fucking killed it thinking on her feet and pretended to get a call and kind of shooed me to the side and told him, oh, I have to take this. So we'll just wait for the next one. Thank you. And ushered us away. I followed without protest even though I saw that no one had called her. After getting the weird feeling and seeing her fake a call, I knew something was up. That and he was extremely creepy standing there holding open the elevator. The second it took off she immediately pressed the button so the next one would come down and grab me and said quietly, that was the man who was waiting behind us in the car in the parking lot. He got out of his car and followed us inside. I was not letting us get in an elevator with him. When the elevator comes, we're going to run to my office and wait a few minutes then take the stairwell out. At this point, I'm freaking the fuck out, but staying calm and quiet and followed her lead. She saw that his elevator went to the third floor. She was on the second floor, so we wouldn't run into him. Even if he somehow discovered we went to the second floor on a different elevator, her office was right next to it and he wouldn't have ever caught up to us. We ran into her office and locked the door and waited about 5-10 to 10 minutes while she held her ear to the door to make sure she didn't hear anything. As I'm writing this, I'm almost laughing like a lunatic because at this point, we sound like paranoid freaks as really nothing had happened, but I'm so glad we watch way too many horror movies. We then unlocked the door and quickly looked out, then ran to the stairwell and ran the fuck out of her office, got in the car and drove home. That was the end of the story for me at the time. I asked my mom when I was a teenager if she remembered that weird time at her office when we had hid in her office and ran away from a guy in the elevator and her face turned white. And she told me what transpired while we were waiting in her office and ran out the soundproof stairwell. The man in the elevator was there for a custody mediation session with his estranged ex-wife. 
He was against the divorce and was desperately trying to stop his wife from divorcing him. The custody session took place before my mom and I got there. He had refused to sign papers that would have awarded him less than 50% of their children living with them. He apparently got so angry that he got up and walked out halfway through the session. His wife decided to remain in the office for about 25 minutes after he left because she was freaked out. During this time, he went back to his car and sat inside and sobbed. This was when my mom and I had pulled into the office building. He eventually grabbed a pair of kitchen scissors he had in the glove box and got out and went back to the building, which is when he followed my mom and I inside. I'm not sure if us getting out of the car kind of snapped him out of it and gave him the push, if you will, to go back inside. He came back inside at the same time as us and got in the elevator, which he invited us inside with him. Based on the evidence from the trial involving a gray sweatshirt, prosecutors put together that he went to the third floor and lurked around waited, waiting for his wife. He got back in the elevator and waited until his wife went to leave and get in the elevator. He proceeded to ambush her and stabbed her 106 times with a pair of scissors in his pocket. He murdered his wife in the most gruesome fashion. The details of the case are horrifying. What chills me to my core is wondering what would have happened if we got in the elevator. It was clear he had an agenda and a direct target. It's highly possible he would have left us alone and went along with his plan. But the last detail is that while he was waiting in his car, he was snorting methamphetamines and was high as a fucking kite. The mediator was the key witness in trial and her testimony is horrifying. Her husband also worked in the building and she was walking to his office when she heard screaming. When she got close to the elevator, she heard the wife yelling her name. She yelled out, it's him. She found the husband dragging his wife inside the elevator with blood everywhere, all over the walls. Then, in front of the mediator, he continued to plunge the scissors into his wife. When the police got there, they found him holding his wife, who was dead, choking her with his arm around her neck. This all took place while we were still in the building. We didn't hear it because we were in the cement stairwell and ran directly outside. All of the above is to say that he clearly went absolutely psychotic and lost his absolute mind. Someone who stabs their wife over a hundred times with a pair of goddamn poultry scissors is clearly fucking insane. But him rapidly continuing to murder her in front of the mediator and choking a dead body when the police arrived is a horrifying level of insane. That and he was high on methamphetamines. There's nothing to say that we wouldn't have set him off in the most random way or that he had already entered his psychotic break or that he wouldn't have wanted to get us out of the way. My mom's actions likely saved our lives that night. She had a gut feeling and trusted her intuition. I read stories on here every day and sympathize heavily with them of people, particularly women, who are conditioned to be polite and end up in danger as a result. My mom knew the fake call might have seemed like bullshit, but she did not give a fuck and was absolutely not getting in the elevator with him. She's not only my hero, but my best teacher. I learned that night to be hypervigilant, pay attention to every little detail of my surroundings, and to fuck politeness and never dismiss my gut. I will never forget the slightly too wide, toothy smile that didn't seem to reach his eyes while he stood five feet away from my mom and, and I holding the elevator. Now that I have had this memory resurface, I think about it all the time of what had happened if we got in the elevator. So I work at a gas station on the main route and we see a lot of travelers passing through. Only one person works each shift and it's a 24 hour store. We are short-staffed, so I agreed to work it overnight. I'm female, and I work in a state that has always had self-serve gas stations. So this guy comes in, I asked him if he needed any help, and he says no. He's getting the gas from the pump, and he needs to use the bathroom. 
I go back to work on whatever invoices we got yesterday. The guy uses the bathroom and then goes back outside. About five to seven minutes later, he comes back inside and tells me that he's confused about the pump. He directly says, you might have to come outside and help me. Customers often don't say this. They usually just complain that it's not working. So I'm already feeling a weird about this guy. I shake it off because he looks like a nerd and, and I don't feel afraid of him. I look at the register to see what error it came up with for his pump. There's no errors. The register doesn't even say that there was that it was in use. Even if someone tries to pay with nothing wrong on their payment, it'll at least say payment loyalty card timeout. But literally it had no sign of him trying to use it before asking me for help. I asked him if he wanted to just pay inside. He agrees to, gets his wallet out of his car, and then pays $10. I give him a receipt and he says, can you help me? I don't understand the machine. And I say, we really aren't allowed to leave the store during overnight shifts as it's just me here and it's not safe to go outside. I don't know why I told him I was alone, but he seemingly wasn't threatening. He proceeds to say, I don't understand what it's asking me. I need help. I'm not scary. I say, it's not that you're scary, I just can't go outside. I would have to tell a little old lady who's asking me for help at this hour the same thing. Which is true, we can't even take out the trash during overnights. He starts to walk away from the register counter now, but then stops at the door. He asks me one last time to come outside and help him. I'm pretty annoyed at this point. I've said no twice now, I'm not going to go, so stop asking. I finally say in a super annoyed tone, Okay, all you need to do is 1. Pick up the nozzle, 2. Select the fuel grade button, and 3. Put it in your tank and squeeze the handle. I'm not going outside. Then he goes back to the car and the register tells me he had no trouble pumping gas. Also his plates seem like they were from the state I work in. This kind of thing wouldn't make me suspicious usually, but the fact that I, he originally opted for me to go outside instead of bringing money inside at 3am is weird. Along with how he didn't bother to use the pump before he came and asked me for help, claiming it wasn't working, and him not taking no for an answer. So potential gas station abductor, let's not beat again. Hey everyone, this is my first post of an actual story on Reddit, so bear with me. I've been reading everyone's amazing stories for years and felt like it was only fair that I contribute something bad. Allow me to tell you about the time I dated a guy on MySpace for two years that nearly ended up getting my entire family murdered, me stalked by a psycho, and everyone involved nearly losing their minds. I've never written this down before or told very many people that I even trust. It's all just too painful and quite honestly unbelievable to tell often. If it didn't happen to me, I probably wouldn't believe it either, but unfortunately it did. I promise what you are about to read is 100% the absolute truth. I hope you all find this interesting. Let me give you some background for this story. I'm an almost 28 year old gay male who was born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains, which for my friends not in America, that's in the south more towards the mid-Atlantic region. I usually didn't just throw being gay out there, but it's important to my tale and to understanding why I made such insanely poor choices in my teenage years. I know almost everyone does, but this really takes the cake. Follow me back to when I was 16, just about 12 years ago. I was a junior in high school, had plenty of friends, and no trouble with bullies, at least not while I was at school. My parents are now wonderful people who greatly regret the way they treated me when they found out I was gay. In the midst of my deepest, darkest despair, the brightest idea anyone has ever had on this planet popped into my head. 
Well, if no one around here will ever love me, then I'll just go online and try to meet someone who will. Pure stroke of genius, right? It just made absolute biblical sense to me at that time. I felt like the only gay teen in the whole damn state. Like the only person who really understood me was me. And only ever would be me. That in order to find someone to love me, I would have to search far and wide beyond the borders of the mountainous fortress I had resided in my entire life. Proud of myself for having such an ingenious idea, I immediately hopped on my MySpace and spent the next hour making it as badass looking as I thought I could. Word to the wise, and something I wish I realized back then, if you are trying to attract the darker things in society, you're probably going to get back exactly what you're sending out. I know I sure as hell did. It all started out innocently enough. I clicked on one of my gay acquaintances' profiles, and for some reason, this guy on his top eight just flew right out at me. His name was Jacob. He was gorgeous, dressed in all black, and that was pretty much all I needed to know at the time. I saw he was from Maryland, several hours away from me, but far enough to possibly not be like anyone else here. Far enough to hopefully have exactly the kind of mentality that I was looking for in another human being. So I sent him a message, something lame to the effect of, Hi, what's up? I saw you on my friend's top eight and thought you were cute, so I figured I would say hello. I wasn't expecting a response, none whatsoever. He was so gorgeous and seemed way too cool for me, so why in God's name would he message a guy like me back? And then it happened. Within a minute of me sending my message, I got one back. And it was from him. Not gonna lie, I exploded in joy on the inside, something that I hadn't felt in years. It was just something like, hey, you're cute too, how are you? But it was enough to send me over the moon. I felt alive again, but what I really felt was hope again. We talked the rest of the day and night. We talked about each other, how much life sucked, how bad we wanted away from our hometown and our lives. You know, the usual for teenage gay boys living in repression. I fell for him hard. Too hard. I mean, hook, line, and sinker hard. We chatted for maybe a week before he asked me out. I had no problem with dating online. Hell, that was the whole point of me doing this in the first place, so I eagerly said yes. We had only been dating for a week after that or so when he introduced me to the rest of his friends. I met his ex-boyfriend, Zachary, and their best friend, Josie who I quickly became best friends with, along with about 10 other girls and guys. Josie was a cool chick and she had known these guys for years. Who better to give me all the dirt on them? Josie and I became closest friends out of everyone he introduced me to in what turned out to be a gang. They were mostly just a group of suburban white kids who called themselves the elites. I had heard some crazy stories here and there about them beating people up and some of them taking the gang thing way too seriously, but I didn't really think much about it. Josie and I had been talking on the phone every single day and really made a genuine connection with each other. She had my sense of bizarre humor, was extremely intelligent, and still liked to have a crazy good time on top of it all. During this period, Jacob and I were doing great, but there was one little problem. I had started to fall in love with his ex, Zachary, the more I talked to him. Jacob could be intense and at times violent when he was angry, from what I had heard. But on the other hand, Zachary was his complete opposite. He was too kind for his own good, an extremely caring guy, and he wrote the most beautiful piano music I'd ever heard. Being a musician myself, I was immediately endeared to this guy. The more and more time I spent online talking to Zachary, the less and less time I felt like talking to Jacob. Eventually, Jacob kind of figured out what was going on, and to my shock, he let me know he was cool with it and wished us the best. That's how, after about two months with Jacob, I started dating his ex, Zachary. 
This would be the guy I would date for the next two years and with whom the worst times of my life would be spent. Josie was clearly thrilled for me and we still talked every day online and on the phone. Sometimes I talked to Zachary on the phone, but more often than not, we, we kept our communication to AOL Instant Messenger. Jacob, who has initially said he was okay with everything, ended up exploding. He completely tore me a new one online and then proceeded to go and kidnap my current boyfriend. Josie called me up, freaking me the hell out, saying he'd taken Zachary and no one knew where they were. This clearly sent me reeling from shock. I guess all the rumors I had heard about Jacob were true. And now, because of my actions, the guy I'm in love with is in danger. I quickly contacted some older guys in the gang and let them know what was going on. Their response was basically, Ah, shit, not again. Which caught me off guard. Again? You mean this happens frequently? I talked to Chaz, the leader of this gang, while he sent some guys out to deal with Jacob and retrieve my boyfriend. He basically told me in a nutshell that Jacob has been and always will be obsessed with Zachary. That when he gets wasted on whatever, he goes cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and sets out on some new wild mission to kidnap and apparently violate my new boyfriend. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was in complete and total shock, but apparently this situation was resolved easily and he handed over my man without too much incident. He also received a healthy ass beating to remind Jacob that it's not nice to go around kidnapping people just because you can. This was the first and certainly not the last incident I can remember where a pattern I'm all too familiar with now would develop over the next several years. Flash forward to around a year after I had sent the very first message to Jacob, I was still with Zachary, still best friends with Josie, who I had been, who I had even been up to Maryland and met in person at this point, unfortunately to miss my boyfriend who was out of town visiting family and was still dealing with Jacob's craptastic insane plots to ruin my relationship and give me a stroke before the age of 20. None of this craziness set off any red flags in my head. Not one. As a matter of fact, nothing period during that entire year gave me second thoughts about anything going on really. Several of my friends however had their doubts, though they were polite enough to keep them to themselves for the time being. This was when the first true danger that threatened me and my family ever rose, and it led to a night I will never forget as long as I live. I received a call one night around 12am from Josie, who was almost beside herself. Very out of character for her. I mean, hell, Zachary had been kidnapped over 40 times in the past year and she hardly batted an eye. But this was different. She explained to me that Jacob had really outdone himself and lost his mind this time. He had hired a guy from the elites named Sean to come down to my house and kill me plus my mother, father, and younger sister. When I heard that my ex had taken it so far as to hire a hitman to come after my family, I flew into what we around here call a mountain rage. It didn't matter to me if someone simply came after me, but to target my precious sister who had nothing to do with any of this was boiling point for me. I asked Josie when, when he left Maryland. She told me she found out that he would started driving towards my house maybe an hour ago. And as soon as she found out, she called me immediately. Okay, so that meant I had at most six hours to prepare and at least possibly four if he had a good head start. She also informed me that Sean was a former army guy, but got kicked out for failing several psych tests and being a complete sociopath in general. I'm not a big guy, and at the time I weighed even less than I do now. I was 5'7 and maybe weighed 130 pounds soaking wet. But my first thought didn't require brute strength to beat back this attacker. 30 minutes later, I was gleaning and loading an extremely nice over and under pump action shotgun. Like I said, no brute force required. I called Jody back up and got the details 
on exactly what he and his car looked like. Then around 4 a.m. I told her I would call her back and crept out into my front yard. In the very front of my yard, there was a huge oak tree that was big enough for my skinny girl jean wearing emo ass to hide perfectly behind. All I had to do was wait and hope he did exactly what I thought he would. I got so lucky. He parked exactly on the opposite side of the big tree I was hiding behind. I heard a car door open and someone step outside of the vehicle, shortly followed by the unmistakable cocking of a 9mm handgun. While that sound may have struck fear in the hearts of others, it absolutely enraged me to my core, so I replied in kind with a sound of my own. As I stepped around the side of the tree, he was directly in front of his car, gunned down by his side. In one motion, I simultaneously pumped a shell into the chamber of my shotgun and raised it directly level with his head about 10 feet away from me. This caught him off guard and completely by surprise. I didn't hesitate. I simply told him the God's honest truth. I said, buddy, you've got one of two options right now. Either you get back in your car, turn around and drive straight back to Maryland without stopping, or you can so much as flinch in my general direction and I will splatter your brains all across the great state of, insert my state, you have five seconds to decide what it's going to be. I kid you not, the most sickly smile spread across the psycho's face, and for a moment I thought we were about to reenact the movie Tombstone. Fortunately, he had much more of a sense of self-preservation than I thought. All he did was give a little chuck and said, You're a cool dude. See you around. He then walked backwards very slowly, my gun following him the entire way, got back into his car, and just drove off. Right then and there I made up my mind. I had to tackle the beast head on. I was always raised that if you have a problem, be a damn man and take care of it yourself. I had to go to my enemy Jacob's home turf and bring this war to his doorstep, just like he brought it to mine. It was time to go to Maryland. I called Josie and told her everything that happened and asked if I could come stay with her for a week. She excitedly agreed. Zachary was asleep for this whole ordeal and blissfully unaware that anything had happened. When he found out the next day, I think he was even more angry than I was. Fortunately for us, the gang leader, the gang's leader, Chaz, liked Zachary a whole hell of a lot more than he did Jacob, so we hatched a plan with him. The idea was for them to kidnap Jacob like he had Zachary so many times before. They would be accomplishing this task while I was on my way up to Maryland, and when I got there, he would be mine to do with as I pleased. You can imagine on the eight-hour drive up there all the hideous and heinous, brutal ideas that were going through my mind. I was going to inflict maximum amounts of pain on the guy that had caused so much in my own life, and I would relish every second of it. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, my dreams of reviving the Spanish Inquisition on my ex's head never came to fruition. When I arrived in Maryland, Josie came skipping out to greet me, happy as a lark, like always to see me. She had some good and bad news. I always asked for the bad news first, and the bad news was that Jacob had gotten tipped off by Kenny that everyone was coming for him. He made a hasty retreat and had intended to kidnap Zachary and take him on the run too. But that was but that was the good news. Before he could get to him, Zachary had hopped on a bus and headed to New York to stay with his mom while things cooled off. As sad as I was that once again I had missed seeing him for the first time, I was just relieved he was out of harm's way safe and sound again no alarm bells going off that for the second time that i had made the trip up there zachary was not around josie called him on her cell and he apparently picked up his mom's because he never had his own cell and we got to enjoy one of the rare times we actually spoke on the phone 
The rest of the week was normal and a damn good time. Josie and I said our goodbyes and we parted ways wishing each other a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Year two of my relationship began quite happily, believe it or not. Then came the next couple months. Two months which quite vividly live within me to this day. They also defined my life for the next several years. This is when the sky stopped falling and my world completely crumbled from beneath me into utter devastation. At the beginning of February, Josie had a sudden and urgent impulse to get away from her parents. Now I could completely understand that, so I happily agreed to let her come stay down south with me. I borrowed my friend's car and drove a 15 to 16 some odd hour round trip all the way to Maryland and back. My parents were less than thrilled. They told me she couldn't live in the house with us, so I said fine and shelled out my own money to a local La Quinta Inn where she and I lived for almost two weeks before my parents caved and let us back in my house. Now, I forgot to mention something extremely important earlier about my boyfriend Zachary. He was very sick. I mean, terminally ill, but we thought it wouldn't be for years. I was told he had cystic fibrosis and he needed a double lung transplant in order to live much longer. He was hospitalized in the beginning of February and rushed up the transplant list because his condition was so grave. I can't even begin to tell you how after the year we'd been through together how badly I wanted to be by his side. Unfortunately, he was at a hospital in part of the country that specialized in treating CF and was way too far for me to travel. Josie kept me in pretty good spirits about the whole thing. She had a lot of experience with CF since her sister died from it several years earlier. She reassured me that since he was so young and tried to take such good care of himself that he would probably receive donor lungs very soon and be just fine. I tried not to worry too much, but in reality I worried my ass off. Zachary and I talked constantly when he felt like it, and even though he was scared and alone, he said he felt like a million bucks knowing I was supporting him with my love, no matter where I was. My boyfriend died suddenly on February 14, 2008. His lungs filled with fluid, he suffocated and died. There was nothing anyone could do, I was completely and totally lost. Josie broke the news and I collapsed into the biggest mess you've ever seen in your life. She was still living with me at the time, so she tried to console me as best as she could while she was shedding her own tears at the loss of her best friend. That forever ruined Valentine's Day for me. Skip forward to March, St. Patrick's Day to be exact, a little over a month since Zachary had passed away. Josie had forcefully been returned to Maryland by her parents, seeing how she had practically ran away. I was off in a la-la land of booze, drugs, and more pain than either of those could cover up. So I had already drank an inordinate amount when my phone rang. It was Josie. I slurred my words as something to the effect of, Hey girl, what you doing? Came bumbling out of my mouth. I announced to the room it was Josie, to which everyone replied, Hey! She had lived with us for several months and love her or hate her, she'd become an honorary southerner. The next words out of her mouth once again sent my head spinning off into a space and my world into complete chaos. Zachary's not dead. I stopped breathing for a moment and when I caught my breath I asked her to repeat that again. She did. Except this time she added the fact that his life had been in danger, blah blah, so he had to hide even from me, blah blah, Jacob just had to think he was dead, blah blah. I could literally feel my brain dripping out from my ears as my mind turned into mush with every word out of her mouth. Then for the real kicker to my drunken mental meltdown, Zachary got on the phone. Sure enough, it was his voice. He apologized for what he had to do. 
I apologize for what I was about to do, which was scream and yell my lungs out, throwing my phone into a wall, smashing it into a million pieces, and then proceed to go from being super hammer drunk to completely shithoused wasted. I drank everything that wasn't nailed down. Who knows what other drugs I did on top of that, because I sure don't remember. I did this for a couple more hours until I somehow drove back home, put on my work clothes, and tore out of the parking lot to go to my job in a city half an hour down the interstate with people chasing me, trying to stop me. I don't recall any of what happened next, but apparently this is what I did. I showed up to work completely wasted and got fired from a damn good job. I called my father, freaking out in the parking lot of this job. He realized I was drunk and told me to stay there and he would come get me. Instead of doing that, I started driving on the interstate again, not caring if I lived or died, and obviously not caring about anyone else. According to the police report, I was tearing down the interstate at 130 miles an hour. I apparently hit two mile markers on the side of the road and blew both my right tires but continued on driving with sparks shooting 50 feet out of the back of my car. I took the exit to the hospital going that fast and spun out completely totaled what was left of my car. According to bystanders, I then proceeded to exit my vehicle and run across the damn interstate towards the hospital with people chasing after me. Once I got to the ER doors, I heard the now familiar whoop whoop of a police cruiser. I was so arrested for driving under the influence I blew a .20 about 12 hours after I had my last drink. If I had blown a 21, I would have gotten a felony charge. That led to years of failed drug tests, violated probations, and ultimately a year in jail down the line. After that, I decided enough was enough. These crazy people from Maryland and their insane concept of living could all go to hell as far as I was concerned. I was done listening to Josie and ready to start listening to my actual friends in town who had been begging me to stay away from those people for a long time now. Some good friends set me down and started to tell me the inconsistencies in all their stories over the last few years. At first I didn't want to listen, but then eventually there was too much evidence not to listen. Finally I opened my ears and my mind to what was really going on. I decided to figure this out once and for all. I got on MySpace, Facebook, and every other social media I could think of. I typed in Josie's full name into the search bar of every single one. What I found to this day still makes me want to turn my stomach contents inside out there on every social media possible by using her name and the dozen email addresses I knew she had I found dozens and dozens of accounts linked to her emails duplicate after duplicate of Zachary's full name on accounts with pictures of her and the same thing with Jacob and every single solitary other person in the supposed deletes that's when it finally after years of denial and torment it finally freaking hit me like a railroad car full of bricks holy shit She's every single one of these people. She absolutely and made up every single solitary one of these people and had been pretending to be a dozen or more people for over two years. As you can imagine, my jaw hit the damn floor. Thank God I had some close friends there who kept me from falling apart and helped me find every single fake profile she had ever created. I was dumbfounded. Profile after profile after profile that had her pictures, but the names of people I thought were entirely real. I diligently copied every link to every single one of her profiles into my AOL Instant Messenger, then I called her. Hey, how are ya? I'm alright, I guess. Just bored, you? Nope, definitely not bored over here. Get on AIM chat, and I'll show you something really interesting. I was nearly hysterical at that point, and I could tell she knew something was up. Once she was online, I simply asked her, Hey Josie, what are these? Then sending her the link to every single fake profile she had ever created in her miserable life and a few from 
email accounts I didn't even know belonged to her. The silence on the other end of the line was deafening as I heard her click through link after link. Her two-year-long mental game was over and she finally realized it. Her words? Well, fuck, man. Guess you got me. She then started to laugh. Genuinely laugh as though something remotely funny had just occurred. I had talked to, lived with, and even befriended the girl who had been stalking and trying to ruin my life for over two years. It was literally and still is the single biggest mindfuck I've ever heard, had in my entire life. Thousands upon thousands of messenger conversations, hundreds and thousands of hours of phone conversations, countless amounts of cash being spent to drive up several states away just to stay with my psycho stalker every single time. There was no Jacob. There was no Zachary. What there actually was, was one completely batshit insane girl with more mental problems than could fit into an encyclopedia. She was the only person I ever talked to. She was the only person I ever saw. And even worse, she was the one that paid Sean to come down to my house with a gun and try to kill my entire family. Josie was the only person in these last two years that had orchestrated any of this. From all the fake kidnappings and boyfriend drama to faking the death of someone I'd fallen in love with and bringing him back just to screw with my head. All the events of the last two years came flooding into my mind as I realized in each and every one it was solely her and no one else but her. I deleted my MySpace and made my Facebook private. I only accept friends that I knew are real. I fell completely off the wagon and out of my head. Drugs, alcohol, and more drugs. That's all I could do to cope. Here I was, a gay man that had unknowingly fallen in love with a straight woman, and regardless of whether or not I thought it was a gay man, which I wholeheartedly did, that shit still fucked with you in the head pretty bad. One good thing did come from this. It sure as hell made me the person I am today, and it strengthened and toughened my resolve into tempered steel. I learned to be okay with myself and to finally love myself after so many years of self-loathing. I'm a pretty amazing person. I don't need a man to define my life and who I am in any shape, form, or fashion. Obviously, I'm worth something. Otherwise, this psycho chick wouldn't have latched onto me for years and ended up... What she stole, I will never get back. But what I gained, she can never take away from me again. I met a guy this weekend. We were at the same restaurant. He was with a wedding party. I was with family. He was polite and respectful, and he offered me his number. I took it, and I decided to text him. We texted him for... We texted for a day or so, and then made arrangements to get together for coffee. We got together in the middle of the day at a public place. I drove myself. I texted a friend and told her where I'd be at in the guy's name. I figured I was being overly cautious. The first three-fourths of the conversation was normal. We talked about work, schooling, basketball, etc. It turned out that he was a lot younger than me. He was 22 and I was 35. He went from being kind of shy and very respectful to telling me a story about how the night after the wedding he came home and people were being crazy. I asked what he meant and he said, lesbian girls I know were having sex in my bed. But he was such a gentleman and didn't stick around to watch. Then locked eyes and said, have you ever been in that kind of situation before? I said, well, I've lived in apartments so I've heard people sometimes. And he pushed further asking, no, but have you ever walked in on something like that? I said, no, that's a weird story to tell someone you just met and change the subject. He talked about himself a lot. He did, he did ask me questions, but would interrupt me when I tried to answer and continue to talk about himself. Something felt odd. He was not acting like he was the night I met him. He leaned over the table a lot and made a noticeable effort to lock eyes with me. 
like eye contact. Uh, it felt more like a stare down after a while. I could feel myself moving away the further he leaned in. He started to talk about how he used to pick up girls and he doesn't do that anymore because he realized that girls he picked up in bars were probably whores who went there every weekend. Then he wanted to know if I ever drank, smoked, did drugs, did I ever party, where did I party, where did I go out, do I see other men, etc, etc. Almost no pauses, one question after the other. We talked for a few minutes more and he looked at his phone and he said, the game I want to watch is going to start soon. Uh, do you want to get out of here? Turns out there was a basketball game on and he wanted me to come back to his place to watch it. I said, no thanks. We just met, so I'm not comfortable with that. So maybe we can do, uh, maybe we can talk again soon. His face sort of changed. He said, I'm sorry, but I really thought you were going to come back with me. I told him I wasn't sure how he got that impression. I had not at any point said that I would. He kept asking me to come back to his place, and I kept saying no. He kept asking me why not, and I said, I kept saying, I just met you. Uh, I'm not comfortable going back to your house. He said, fine, let's go to the park then. Red flags and alarm bells were going off, so I said, no thanks, I'm not interested. He basically begged and even said he'd skip the game if, he want if I wanted him to. I said, no, just go home. We just met for coffee. It's not that big a deal if we can't take it any further today. He then asked me to take a walk in the field behind the coffee shop, looked at the ground, and said, I'll do anything you want, just don't leave. I said again, I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere else with him that day, so please just respect that, and we'll talk later. I got to my car, and as he was pulling away, he yelled out his car window at me, I'm going to do everything I can to change your mind. Come over. I sat and I watched him leave because things just felt weird. I drove home and my phone was blowing up the whole time. He was texting and calling, saying he was home and I should come over. Then he sent me a video of himself watching basketball on his couch alone. He started sending me a message saying that he could see a future with me, that I was the most beautiful woman he's ever met, that it was horrible for such a beautiful woman like me to be single, and that he liked our chances together. The entire coffee date was 40 minutes, max. He continued to ask me to come over. Then the calls really started. 7.55, 8, 8.02, 8.07, He called and called over and over the next several hours. I texted him after the first couple of calls. He sent me yet another text saying how beautiful and perfect I was and he wanted to date and travel together. And all I could think was to say, I'm sorry I don't feel the same way about you and you seemed, that you seem to feel about me. I wish you well, take care. And he said he didn't understand. Did that mean I didn't want to see him again? So I replied, I'm sorry for not being clear. No, I don't want to see you again. I'm sorry, I wish you well, goodbye. The calls and texts kept coming. I told him one time to please stop. I, I had to turn off my phone, it kept vibrating so much. The texts were all, what did I do wrong? Uh, why won't you tell me so I can fix it and make it work between us? I'm really a great guy, I like you so much. You owe it to me to tell me. If you tell me, then I'll stop bothering you, but you have to tell me. I blocked his number, but my phone still logs call attempts from blocked numbers, so I could see he was still up, up until 2 a.m. calling. He called a few more times this morning and again this afternoon. I called my phone company this morning to check, and it turns out he has sent me over 200 text messages in one day. 
That was the tipping point. I decided to go to the police station and at least talk to them about possibly filing a report as a suspicious behavior or harassment. All I had was his first name, and I'm pretty sure it was a nickname and a phone number. The cops were really nice and took down all the info. He had never threatened me, and I had told him to stop, and he wouldn't. They said that he was... Uh, that it was enough to be concerned. I showed them the texts and the timing of his calls, and they said it's definitely obsessive and unstable behavior. And it was good I came in. Even just to put it on record in case things got worse. I felt so bad for going in there, like it was stupid to even have gone to meet him. But I've been on lots of coffee dates, and no one's ever done this kind of thing before. After I left the station, I got home and checked my phone. I had three voicemails from unknown numbers. It was him pleading me to call him, to tell him how to make it right. He just doesn't understand why I blocked him. Th did he message too much? Was it a bad move because to call me 80 times in the night? Why wouldn't I just talk to him? I recorded the voicemails and sent them to the police, along with screenshots of the messages and logs from the phone company. Now I'm low-key terrified of what would happen next. Will the cops call him? If they do, will they make him mad? I'm pretty sure I didn't tell him anything about the area of the city I live in um, or where I work. And all he had was my phone number, no Facebook or WhatsApp or other socials. I considered changing my cell phone number. I'm also hoping that he'll get the point after a few days of silence and give up. Update. He's been texting me and calling me from random numbers all day. I've been taking screenshots and sending them to the police with my report number. It's been a long, exhausting day. I really want to change my number, but he keeps sending me stuff and I feel like it might be helpful for the police to figure out who he actually is. I've informed my family and my friends, employer, my cell phone provider, and building caretaker about this crazy pants. Mega update. Today, he wrote a really long-winded message asking for another chance and begging for forgiveness. He said, I was just overly excited to meet such a beautiful girl and a well-endowed woman and that he needed just one chance to show my true worth. Pleading and pleading for me to reply and come meet him and he signed his name at the bottom. I had heard it slightly wrong and didn't have the right spelling in my phone. I went on Facebook and found his profile. He has zero security settings. He's not friends with anyone I know. I copied the link and sent it off to the cops. I'm torn between hoping that they can talk some sense into him and being terrified if the police confront him that he'll become even crazier. I would have slept easier if I, if I had changed my number right away. I might have never gotten his real name and profile if I had. I doubt the cops will do much until he starts threatening me. Now I'm torn. Do I change it and keep change it and sleep better at night or let him scream into the silence while I collect more evidence? Is it worth it? And I keep thinking all he has is my number. Update. The last contact I have from my coffee date was four-ish days ago. He called me at 12.56 a.m. on the 24th. I had been texting, um, he had been texting me from the same number a few days earlier uh, when he sent me the charming message about me being so well endowed. So I'm pretty sure it was him. I admittedly felt a little burned out and I'm taking off work tomorrow to try to chill out. This has been a lot to handle with work and life in general. I haven't really heard from the cops and I've gotten back a couple confirmations that they've added screen caps and voicemail recordings to the file, but nothing else. He hasn't been threatening to me, but, and his enthusiasm seems to be dying down. I doubt I'll hear much unless things change. 
Here's hoping there aren't any reasons for the police to get more involved. I stash my hammer between my headboard and my mattress. It feels gross every time I get in bed and I hear it lightly tap against the wall, but I'm glad it's there. I was about seven years old. My brother was about 10. It was well past our bedtime when our mom woke up off the couch to put us to bed. Our dad worked construction out of town, so it was often just three of us at the house for weeks at a time. Up the stairs and to the immediate right was our parents' bedroom. Going left put you in the middle of a hallway. Taking another left down that hallway led to my brother's room. The opposite end was my room, which was also across the hall from our upstairs bathroom. At either end of the hallway are window doors that we always kept locked and, locked and rarely used. The door on my end led to a balcony overlooking our front yard, and the door on my brother's end opened to the back porch. My brother and mom had a bad habit of waking up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. I only knew this because I was a light sleeper and they couldn't just help with flushing with the door wide open. This night, however, my brother stopped on his way to his room and came back towards the bathroom. I'm gonna try to pee before I go to bed. The past few nights I've been too afraid to walk to the bathroom. I keep seeing a man wearing stripes at the end, of, at the end of the hallway. I don't know if my mom wrote it off as my brother telling ghost stories trying to scare me or if she was already half asleep and didn't catch it. She didn't react at all to my brother's confession. I, on the other hand, was terrified by it. The fear of seeing a ghost at the end of the hallway and through the windows is the reason I started running, to my, running from the stairs to my bedroom at night. <laughs> Years later, when I was about 18, my mom and I were having a conversation in her car about a dog that we had for a very short time when I was little. We were sharing stories about Max's tendencies towards destroying my shoes and other unruly behaviors. When my mom blurted out, do you remember that time when I opened the front door for the cops and Max ran inside to the kitchen and started tearing open the big bag of dog food we had? This really caught me by surprise because in all the years I lived in that house, we never once called the cops. Gun owner family in a quiet rural, na rural neighborhood, etc. I asked her what she was talking about and she looked equally surprised as if she had revealed something by accident. Oh, that's right. I never told you because you were too young at the time. One night, I woke up hearing noises outside my window, and I, I looked, when I looked, I saw a man staring into my bedroom. She went on to describe how turning on the lights caused him to take off running, and how she grabbed my dad's pistol before calling the cops. I can't remember all the details I gave them when he, they showed up. Tall, white male wearing a striped shirt and jeans, short, dark hair, something like that. They said it matched the description of a man that they were looking for in the area. Turns out he had escaped from jail on a murder charge. Now I know it sounds so obvious hearing those two stories back to back, but it wasn't until a few years ago in my mid-twenties that I pieced together that my brother had unknowingly warned us about a murderer who spent multiple nights casing our home. <laughs>